Inside Westminster, Chapter 244, Cop Out. COP26 was upon the government before they could say deforestation. There'd been so much going on. What with the G20 in Rome, the impending trade war with France over fishing, and, of course, the never-ending nightmare of the pandemic. Ptolemy Trudge-Jones literally had never felt the weight of that jumbo jet he was pulling, a.k.a. his job as leader of this great nation, as much as he had in recent weeks. Added to the Mount Everest of mundane work he had to climb over each and every day, including most weekends, Mandy simply hadn't shut up about, and would not shut up, about the climate. Yeah, yeah, I know it's important, Potty had been saying to her for ages, adding, but in case you hadn't noticed, I've been rather distracted lately with other critical issues. Why couldn't he just tell her to lay off for a moment Or, your incessant carping is driving me stir-crazy. But he couldn't, and it was maddening that he couldn't work out why he couldn't. His nature was that of laissez-faire, to the point of, let's do nothing and hope any given problem would solve itself, or simply disappear. This, even in the most dire of crises... His marriage to Sophia, the ultimate organiser and coper, had recently begun to seem a haze of easiness and comfort, and only now did he realise how much his second wife had sheltered him from the grind of normal family life, as she had simply done everything without even bothering to consult him. Aside from that, Sophia had been earning vastly more than him for years, so she had employed a succession of live-in nannies slash au pairs, That marriage had worked. More than worked. On reflection, it had been marvellous. Now, well, now things were totally different and he had been forced to be more hands-on, not only with his and Mandy's sprog, but with everything. It was only now that he'd come to realise what a gem he'd booted into the long grass. But hey-ho, he'd sometimes say to himself, I'm sure I'm a more interesting and dazzling chap for all my mucking in and getting my hands dirty, so to speak. It was now the norm for him to be doing the washing up after their supper, reading his briefs for the morning and planning a speech, all at the same time. He'd even appeared at cabinet meetings with jam-smeared crumpled briefing papers, the sight of which had most senior MPs twitching with foreboding as to the real preparedness of their leader. He occasionally bemoaned, to himself, the fact that he was top dog, but, in the flat at least, was treated like a skivvy. It had worried him, too, that somehow tormentors like Neil Forthright had actually told him, the Prime Minister, to shut up during an interview for the morning news. And leading up to the cop, another journo had actually accused him to his face and on camera of lying. He'd begun to wonder if Mandy had secretly been briefing them or whether the truth that he'd become tied to her apron strings had actually been showing somehow in his demeanour. Or was it his former special adviser, Benedict Morgan, who'd been stirring the shit? After all, they'd parted on such bad terms. Indeed, it occurred to him they hadn't spoken since, and Potty knew Ben never forgave anyone who crossed him, ever. 
And then he remembered brazen, Amanda's brazen words with the Defence Secretary about her friend, the dog-saving Penwether's demand for a plane to rescue them all from the hell of Kabul, and began to sweat at the thought that that would get leaked to the press. Oh boy, he thought, if the boot were on the other foot and I was back in my old job as a journalist, I'd crucify the bastard PM. And how he wished he had access to the sort of dosh their current circle of friends and acquaintances had their sticky mitts on. Erish Butt, the Chancellor, for example, he was loaded in his own right and his wife was heiress to the whole of India's mining wealth, so no skivvying there. Potty could imagine Erish being treated like a lord of the manor in his huge estate in Yorkshire, and no one getting fraught and red-faced on too much booze either. At that point, he'd have to force himself to think of something else before he threw some crockery at the opposite wall. And if his mind wandered back to his sorry plight, well, he'd have to give he'd had to give himself a few stiff talkings to to keep himself on the straight and narrow. Not that he had any spare time to engage in extramural activities of the sexual kind like he'd subjected poor Sophia to. Possibly later, he'd, he contented himself with thinking only the one person who really understands what she'd taken on was Mandy herself. The preparations for the two weeks of COP26 had been fraught and badly managed by Sabbath Malik, who appeared to just not get the utter importance of the whole shebang. More heads of state were to be gathered in one place than possibly at any other event except for a head of state's funeral. That thought was not lost on Penny Potty as he penned his keynote speech, trying to scatter a few Potty-isms amongst the play pages of Gloomster end-of-the-universe stuff was essential, he'd felt, otherwise it simply wouldn't ring true. So how could he, of all people, criticise Malik for his laid-back approach? And then cavalcades of key people started arriving, along with storms and protests which seemed to mirror the profound message of this cop. Who chose Glasgow? bellowed Potty to Matt Shrove, who happened to be passing by the vending machine Potty was trying to kick into action. Well, not me, I'm afraid, Shrove added. Shrove said, adding, why, what's wrong? Everything, stormed Potty, starting with the, that cretin First Minister Monkfish. Shrove just chuckled mischievously, resisting, saying, I told you so. Who had indeed chosen Glasgow, a city not famed for its weather, suitability for such a massive event or anything really. Indeed, Potty had had to turn off the TV at the sight of throngs of the world's most senior statesmen and women standing in, gloomy, in the gloomy Scottish drizzle, being herded by teams of security through the one solitary entrance into the main auditorium. It was excruciatingly embarrassing, but far too late to do anything about this insulting mess. But dear Monica Monkfish had reminded everyone early on in the preparations that it would be the charm of the people of Glasgow themselves that would lift everyone through the chaos and gloom, if you could understand them, that is. The great and the good came and went during the initial few days with highfalutin speeches and pledges for all things green and good, everyone knowing that, 
A, the two main players for any 11th hour rescue of the planet hadn't even bothered to turn up, and B, pledges, however well intended and grandiose, were meaningless claptrap unless underpinned by law slash sanctions for non-compliance. And as if to underline all the conference's shortcomings, Potty flew back to London on a private jet to attend a dinner at one of the bastions of white male privilege, the Bulldog, with one of the biggest hypocrites of all things eco, Donal Aspel, and Mr Tory finance fixer, Harry Bennett. He'd been asked to give a few impromptu speech. He'd been asked to give an impromptu speech, something Potty prided himself on being master of. But oops, was it the wine or the sheer exhaustion of the past few weeks? Hectic events, but it out it slipped. Sorry, old chums, but you know what it's like to suffer from buyer's regret. Well, most didn't, as it was only those closest to him who knew what Potty actually meant. His marriage to Mandy was proving to be beyond a stress. And like a shark scenting blood in the water, Scarlet Heavens' head popped 